Hi, welcome to Talking Newswork. My name is Rui Branco and together with Anita Silva, we bring you a podcast where we interview newswork experts and practitioners that have a say when it comes to innovation in newswork, either because they are using creative methods to empower young people, researching on news trends or responsible for use policies at international level. Like a shot of inspiration, all of our guests have a unique point of view about how can use workers shake up, upgrade and innovate on their daily work. Hi, today we talked with Nick Patterson. Nick is from the UK and has a background as a youth worker. Today he is a trainer of trainers in youth workers in the European field of youth. For the last few years, he has been working as a full-time freelance trainer, a writer and a consultant. He's a good friend and we talked about facilitation of learning, about the competences needed to facilitate individual but also group learning processes. We were actually surfing the wave that settles the difference between conveying knowledge to a group and inviting learners to take responsibility for their own learning process, to document that process, to document their inner discoveries while they're learning, and how that process can be empowering for them or propelling them to new ways of learning. And actually, then the question emerged of what is the facilitator doing if the learner is doing all that, taking all that responsibility? Well, it turns out he's doing a lot. You'll understand what I mean during this episode. Let's just talk some youth work. Hello, hello. Welcome again to our podcast, Talking Youth Work. It's the 1st of October. I'm talking to you from Portugal and we've been having a small break. Well, actually, it was a long break uh, for summer. I hope that everyone got the rest that they needed and uh, had some nice vacation or staycations or whatever you had. Uh, today, I'm here with Rui Branco, as always. Hello, Rui. Hello. <laughs> and uh, we have as our guest, Nick Patterson which is a long-due friend and um, a senior trainer in Europe. Welcome, Nick. Thank you. Thank you for the senior bit as well. <laughs> senior as in wise. Yeah, thank you. Yes, exactly. Thank you, <laughs> you saved me. Uh, I've, I've known uh, Nick for many, many years. We were just... Um, saying before we started uh, recording that we've met in Bosnia in a refugee camp uh, 20 years ago, probably, uh, in a very interesting experience. It was a very important project for me as well. I discovered a lot about non-formal education and community work back then, and you were one of the trainers there. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I wanted to ask you, can you present a little bit yourself? What What is it that you do to people? And the second question is, how did you, or maybe that's the first one, how did you end up in youth work? Um, yes, thank you. I'm, um, well, I'm, I'm going to start actually with, with the first question there and, and then work backwards uh, just to be difficult. Um, <laughs> I'm actually now um, a full-time freelance trainer in the youth sector uh, on a European level. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the reason that, that I got here is um, is that uh, I, I've been involved in youth work for m most, if not all, of my working life um, and qualified as a professional youth worker in the UK um, and actually started youth work as a teenager. Um, I was part of a church youth group um, and at one point started actually running that. Uh, I was also part of the village youth, youth club and became a volunteer in that. Uh, this was around the age of 16. So even at that age, I was I was taking a leading role um, in, in the youth youth work field. Uh, and then in my 20s, I qualified and um, and had a series of jobs um, working in, in, in youth work in the UK um, up until 2003. And then um, actually, I, I then left the UK and started teaching youth work in the Balkans, Western Balkans. Um, and then 10 years ago, uh, I became freelance. So that's that's basically uh, a little bit of history. <laughs> and you now you live and you are talking to us from Montenegro, right? That's correct. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I live in a little seaside town called Herzegovina in Montenegro. All right. Very nice. So it's interesting how different people always uh, come to youth work in different ways. Um, we have very similar stories. I also started in a church group and a community center. So we have very parallel stories on that. Yeah. Nick, today's topic is um, how to facilitate learning. Uh, you know, the role of facilitation. It, it's a word that I think it became more and more used in the last years. I don't know if you if you have this feeling because I don't know when I was a youngster in that church group, I didn't hear the word facilitation anywhere. It became some. It's something re relatively new, no? I th I think so. Yes, uh, I I would agree with you um, in terms of uh, of back at being sixteen years of age and and uh, running around um, and listening to the record player and, and uh, playing ping pong and pool and kicking a ball around. Um, the, the whole concept of facilitation wasn't, wasn't necessarily an overt part of, of that mm. experience. Um, I think learning, I'm, well, I know learning was still taking place and it was an important part of, of growing up. Um, but I, I think it came much later and, and even, even within my, uh, youth work education, you know, qualifying as a youth worker, I, I don't remember such an emphasis on it at that time, sorry, university. Um, but, um, and, and also working as a youth worker in the early days, uh, I don't remember having such a focus, although it was there, it was a, it was a core part of, of what I was doing. Uh, and how I was working was was about educational based activities, but we didn't refer to it as facilitating learning. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think this is something that has come up uh, more and more. Partly, I think, because of the, the 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 developments in the youth sector on a European level, especially those who are training youth workers on the mm -hmm. European level through Council of Europe funding, through uh, Erasmus Plus European Union funding. Um, I think we've focused much more on on facilitation of learning um, within the training of youth workers, and I think that is now fe feeding down into the youth work practice itself. Um, so I think this is this is why we're we're hearing it more and more is because it's just becoming part of the common language. That doesn't necessarily mean that everyone is is following it or or, or um, 
practice recognizing it. what they're doing or practicing it that's another reality i mean youth work is always going to be there's going to be good practice and there's going to be poor practice mm-hmm. um so um I, th- I think in terms of facilitation um people are becoming more aware uh, and it's something that we can still keep developing right what I, i think a lot of people would would have this question in their head which is what would be the difference between a teacher let's say or an educator and facilitator of learning i mean what are we talking about here um i think um oh uh, this is a huge question um feel free to answer half um so basically um i i think if we're talking about I'm going to put it in very simplistic terms. So um, I'm, I'm sure there will there'll be some people that will get upset with the answer. But um, <laughs> I, I think in very black and white terms, in very generalized terms, mm-hmm. um, when we think about teaching, and again, in many places, this is changing now. But when we think about teaching, it's about delivering information. Uh, and it's about learning that information um, in order to pass an exam, to get a certificate, to get into university, to to find a job. Yeah. Well, it's, uh, at least it's the classic idea of teaching. This right? is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm painting a very unfair black and white picture here. But, it, but it, there is an element of delivery of information. Um, and when we talk about facilitating learning, um, for me, it's more about working with the group whether it be a, a, a group of youth workers or whether, whether it be a group of young people, working with the group to enable learning to happen, uh, not just delivering. I think, yes, there there is elements when I, I stand up in front of a group and, and I deliver an input, a theory. I try and make it interactive most of the time, but it's still there. So there's still a delivery of information taking place. But the majority of the time uh, is posing a challenge to the group. Um, whether that be a game, an activity, an exercise, uh, problem solving, um, team building or, or whatever. Um, so, so then the group is then working together to, to try and find out an answer. Maybe it's even just research um, uh, or listening to a video and, and, and taking from it and then talking with each other to, to find out something, then coming back together in a group, sharing that information, And then my job as facilitator of learning is is to correct the way if it's wrong, if there's a completely wrong and, and a complete misunderstanding of, of some information, because it isn't about letting people just think whatever and, and get things completely wrong. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully then guiding them um, to, to where they need to be going um, and, and then supporting those answers which are correct or in the right direction. Um, and, and saying correct and wrong, I don't like those terminologies as such. But uh, um, but it's it's basically supporting supporting people to their learning. Um, and this is one of the things I think that is is coming up more and more in the training sector, at least, um, is is around self directed learning. Um, and and um, and we spoke about this just recently. Um, and maybe self directed learning isn't isn't the right terminology here, but. Uh, self-responsibility to learning. Um, would you make I, that clear? I mean, how would you define self-directed learning? Because I think it's a concept that it's even newer than facilitation, yes. at least in our, <laughs> in our um, language uh, here in Europe and, and how we refer to things. How would you describe self-directed learning? Um, for me, self-directed learning is me taking responsibility for my learning. 
Um, so um, when when the facilitator is is telling me, okay, you have this, this, and this, and you need to go and do this. Here's some instructions. Go away and do it. It's not then just sitting back and saying, well, okay, it's easy. I can just find the answer here, boom, um, and and just find the the easiest way to. Or someone knows the answer. Okay, I don't have to do any work now. It, it's it's done. It's actually saying, hang on a minute, that's one answer. Could we actually investigate something else? Or we got that answer really easily in, in two minutes. We've got 30 minutes for this activity. What more can we find out? Mm-hmm. Um, and is this really is this really correct? Or is there another version of this or an alternative to this? Um, so it's 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 not just taking the easy road. Mm-hmm. It's uh, self-directed for me is, is about uh, challenging myself to find out everything I can in relation to what what has been challenged to me uh, or given to me as a challenge um, and um, and not expecting other people to come up with the answers. Um, and in terms of, um, I, I'm, yeah, sorry, I'm getting mixed up with different things here, but um, that, that for me is the essence of it, is, is taking responsibility um, for myself and, and not expecting someone else to do it for me. All right. Mm-hmm. But you're saying that as a facilitator, maybe what we practice more is not so much the promotion of self-directed learning by learners, but more something else or something in between. Did I got it right? Um, I I think for a long time, because uh, we're, we're talking about non-formal education or non-formal learning, uh, which is obviously different from, from high school and, um, and university, which we call formal learning. Yeah. Um, so I think for a long time in non-formal education, um, we've, we've become a, in some ways a little bit like the formal education model. We have all these games and these activities, these exercises, these challenges, um, but we're still delivering right. the information. And, and I think the training sector has has fallen into this, not everybody, but I would say to a large extent has fallen into this trap because we get a culture of, of learning from our learners, from our participants who are demanding, in a sense, yes, we want non-formal learning, but, but give us the answer anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and this is because we grow up with this. This is not to criticize people. This is just a reality. This is what we grow up with. This is what we've experienced all of our educational lives. Yeah. Um, so, it, and then it also became easier for us trainers to then be saying, ah, oh, yes, and you've done the exercise and now here is the answer. <laughs> yeah. And, and in a sense, so we, we felt we've fallen into the same trap. And I think now in the last few years, and maybe more than the last few years, uh, a lot of trainers have started to think, hang on a minute, what are we doing here? Um, where Where is the responsibility of the learner in this equation? Um, what actually is their role? Mm-hmm. Uh, and what should they be uh, contributing towards this, this learning environment? Aren't they part of it? Um, what's their and, agency? Sorry? And what's their agency on this? Where, yeah. where is their active role in actually maybe co-designing that they're this kind of learning process with us. Yes. Yeah. So, um, um, one, one, um, yeah, one, one example of this, which, which has become quite a big passion for me in the last couple of years is something that we've, we've called reflection groups for a long time. Um, and reflection groups are designed to be, uh, traditionally at the end of the day and you divide your group into small groups of, of four or five persons and they sit in those groups and they should reflect on the day. Mm-hmm. In reality, 
what is happening is is that they are evaluating what you did during the day. Yeah. Um, and many of us have just gone along with this and said, yeah, this is a reflection group, which actually isn't a reflection group. Uh, it's it's a, it's an opportunity for your participants to criticize you about the things they didn't like in the day. That input was too long. That game was boring. Um, didn't like Nick's attitude in, in that in that exercise um, or whatever. Um, and this, this isn't, this isn't reflecting. And, and, uh, I became part of, um, uh, a series of training courses where I realized this is a big part of, of this learning experience, mm-hmm. um, is, is about reflection. Um, and if we are reflecting, which is actually not easy to do, um, then we're putting ourselves into the learning zone. And then we're taking responsibility for our, this is one of the key areas of taking responsibility for our learning. Um, and what, what, what I realized was that we have this assumption that we can just say to people, go and reflect, but they have no idea what that actually means. Okay. Um, and, um, and I remember being on, on one, one training course as a participant. Um, and actually it was a pool of trainers meeting for one organization. And we had four activities to do, all reflective activities in, in a morning. Um, out of the 20 of us there, 16 of my colleagues finished those four activities in under an hour. Um, I was halfway through the third one by lunchtime. <laughs> and, and it really gave me a wake-up call to think, actually, I personally understand what is meant by reflection. And I will throw myself into this because I, I find it engaging anyway. But I realized that actually for most people, they don't fully understand what reflection is and, and what's required. So I've started to try and introduce learning about reflection into a training course where we want reflection to happen, mm-hmm. um, trying to gauge where the group is at. So I have to change it according to, to their needs um, and get them exploring what does what does what is the dictionary definition of reflection? Mm-hmm. What are some of the techniques of reflection? Um, that we classically understand out in the world. So things like, uh, and not necessarily directly a reflection, but yoga and, and, and stuff like the meditation and, and stuff like this. These are, these, these can be part of it, of course, mm-hmm. but it's, it's really about, um, stopping. Uh, this for me is my explanation of, of reflection. It's about stopping and letting go of, of the day. Um, and, and trying to slow the brain down because especially on training courses where we're doing residential work, um, people are working six, eight hours a day and it's nonstop information, 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 activity, information, activity. And your brain is, is going like a gazillion kilometers an hour. Um, and it's like, well, stop. Now just, just let it all go. And, and what I realized, another element that I realized was that we're asking people to, to then identify their learning. And again, most people cannot identify learning, not, not in a moment's notice. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's really, really difficult to do because we're not educated to do that. Um, so what I start to say to people is, is record your experience. Mm-hmm. What did you experience today? What emotions, what thoughts, uh, the good, the bad and the ugly doesn't matter. Um, what was new for you? What was interesting for you? What was not interesting for you? And then getting people to record that in a way that is comfortable for them. Um, and, and the classical way is, is a diary, which works for some people, but it doesn't work for most people in reality. Um, 
I discovered a new way for myself at the beginning of this year, which was actually um, using Messenger on Facebook. And um, a, a friend of mine couldn't be on, on the training course. So I ended up writing to her every day. Um, and, and sometimes with the dialogue and sometimes just me typing because she wasn't online. And I found it a really useful way of, of, um, of recording my, or looking back at it, my learning. Um, and then what I try and do at the end of the week then is get people to then review what they've recorded, whether it be through um, graphics, um, writing, notes, bullet points, diagrams, mind maps, mm. going for a walk and, and trying to store it in their brains. Um, now bring it all back at the end of the week. And then you can start to identify what you've learned. You can then start to go through that and say, ah, yes, here's something, here's something. Thanks, Nick. This, um, what, what you're mentioning about the importance of reflection in learning was actually one of my last points because I find it, well, one of the most important and most abstract sometimes to understand in terms of what it means to be a facilitator of learning. But I, I'm very aligned with you on this, that we need to help people understand better that they are going through um, through a learning process, whatever that means for each individual, and to find ways that that this becomes more uh, present for them so that they can actually control it better. If we say that the learner is at the center of our action and that he or she, they should be able to control and, and take responsibility for your for their learning, like you said, then they need to understand their learning more. And that means, you know, like you said, if you every day you send a message to your friend, it helps you become aware of what you're going through, what's working for you, what's not. Uh, and this is much more valid than assessing if, if the trainer was, um, you know, good on his performance or not today. And th that can also be done, by the way. That can be done in different ways. We're not avoiding this kind of uh, feedback. But one thing is feedback to the team. Something else is reflection about learning. So when you're talking about reflection, it's really about the learning, the learner looking back at his process and saying, okay, where am I now? What am I curious about now? What I, I'm struggling with? Everything else, right? Yeah. And, and they could also be saying, and there's nothing wrong with saying, you know, I didn't like Nick's attitude in that session or, or I didn't get anything from that session. Great. But why didn't you get anything from that session? Exactly. Not because Nick's a bad trainer. What's, what's your responsibility in that? Yeah. Um, so, um, and, and that's the point that I, I, I endeavor to get mm. to with learners is, is not just identifying the things that I agree with. Mm. It's, it's also working out why I agree or why I don't like something. Because um, the positive and the negative is completely valid. Exactly. Um, I, I can run a bad session. Yeah, for sure. Um, or get something completely wrong or upset somebody. Uh, unintentionally, but um, but then it's up to them to work out uh, the reasoning behind that, um, and and that for me is is responsibility in learning. I was thinking uh, um, in what we're discussing here in the role of not knowing, because I, sometimes I feel that those reactions, even Nick wasn't uh, a good trainer, or I didn't learn anything. Sometimes people, they're, they're not aware or, or, or not comfortable with not knowing something and feeling sometimes confused about the information that they got and they haven't processed it yet and they want to find the reason why they don't know something. How can yeah. we help the people to be comfortable and make them aware of their not knowing process? 
I, I, th I think that is part of the reflection, and that's the beauty of it uh, for me. Is is um, um, just to take a maybe take a step back, one one step further back from that. And and often what has happened in training courses is you get to the evaluation at the end of the week, and people will say, "I didn't learn anything." And you say, "Well, why didn't you say anything on day two mm. or, or day three? Um, you know, it's my responsibility as as a trainer." Uh, or youth worker um, to be ensuring that everybody is is uh, going through a learning process. And if someone gets to the end of the week and and says, I didn't learn anything, it was useless, then to a certain extent I've failed, but to a certain extent they failed themselves by not actually saying anything. So then coming to your point, when someone is uncomfortable because they're, they're not learning or they're not understanding, if they can reflect on that for themselves and then realize Actually, it's okay that I don't understand, but what I need to do now is challenge the person who's giving me this information to get them to a point where I can understand. And then approaching the trainer, maybe not in the group in front of everybody else, because that can be intimidating and, and it can be shaming, um, but maybe in, in the break or, or at the mealtime, just saying, hey, listen, I, I really didn't get what you were talking about this morning, or I didn't understand the purpose of that exercise. How does it link in? Um, and, and that takes courage to do that, for sure. Um, but I think it's our responsibility as trainers to, to be creating the atmosphere where someone has the, the, um, the courage to actually do that. Uh, and then it's my responsibility to ensure that I react to that need. That's so important. And it takes me to, I think, another aspect that um, I, I want to know your opinion about it as a facilitator, uh, which is how do you create uh, this environment uh, of safety where, and then there's a question mark on this, but how do we create this, this environment of safety where people feel comfortable to say, I didn't get it, uh, please explain me again, or where should I find this, where actually the outcome of real deep reflection can be welcomed and harvested, and there is space to to look further or to expose my vulnerabilities as a learner and say, I didn't get it, everybody else did, but I didn't. Um, so how do you, how important is it for a facilitator to create safe space? That's my question. Uh, I think it's hugely important, and I and I think we uh, it's one of the things probably is, as a sector we fail at the most, um, and I and I think it's important not just for participants; it's also important for us because um, somebody standing up and saying, "Oh, I didn't get it. You're useless." Uh, that's you know, it might be a safe space for them to say that, but it's no longer a safe space for me because now I'm feeling intimidated and, and put down. Um, so uh, I think the safe space concept really is is a, is a two way street, mm -hmm. um, and it, it's it's trying to create uh, a space. Uh, no, I'm just repeating it now. I, I I think this is something I still have to think about a lot. Um, I know that one of the things I've done in the past with with a, with a great colleague I've worked with many times uh, when we've done training for trainers, for example, um, and. Um, and on these training courses, we, we really leave ourselves open to the group. We leave, leave ourselves incredibly vulnerable at times. So every now and again in, in any training course, you get to a point where you maybe get stuck and you need a timeout with your colleagues and you normally leave the room and you have a little chat. Okay, what are we doing? How do we? Okay, let's move. This. Okay, we'll do that. And in these training for trainers, we do that in front of the group right. uh, quite openly. We'll say, hang on a minute, we're stuck. 
can you come here, colleague? And we stand in front of the group and we have that conversation. And sometimes we're talking about the group mm -hmm. uh, and the difficulties we're having with the group. Um, and we tell them at the beginning of the week, we are going to be doing this. Everything is going to be transparent. That's powerful. Um, and it's really, it's really scary. It's scary for them as well because the people are really freaked out because you're, you're seeing stuff that you don't normally see, you know, trainers are supposed to know what they're doing. <laughs> yeah. Well, we have that. I mean, that's what people see in us. They, they see us that we're supposed to be, you know, not perfect, but they, in a sense, people see us like that, that, uh, we're the professionals, we're in charge, we're this persona up front. And actually most of the time, you know, we're, we're, hanging on by our fingertips a lot of the time you know we we have that courage and that persona because it's necessary but uh, that doesn't mean we know what we're doing all the time we get stuck um and and especially in training for trainers i think it's it's really important that people actually you know you want to be a trainer yeah this is this is reality sometimes you get stuck um and you need to find a way forward so i i think um there's that balance partly to answer your question uh, i think there's part of a balance between being in charge and letting the group know that you are in charge. And that, that's part of the power thing of, of, uh, of, of being a trainer and, I, and power, I mean, in a positive sense here, not, not an abusive sense. Mm. Um, and having that balance of also being vulnerable. Um, and maybe that's about integrity um, and, and the, the ability for a trainer to, um, to say, actually, yes, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I actually, I remember a long time ago when I was, teaching youth work um i had a colleague who who used to get so upset with me when someone a participant would ask a question i would say i don't know and they would say but you can never show me that to a group you always have to have an answer and it's like but if i don't know i don't know <laughs> i mean i don't care if they think something less of me because i don't know okay fair enough it's not my problem um but i'd rather be honest so i, I think um that's that's part of it is, is showing honesty and, and integrity, mm -hmm. uh, walking, walking the talk. So you're not just saying you need to be like this and then doing something else. Um, you need to be there as you, as, as vulnerable, but also in charge. Um, yeah. Uh, let me ask you something. Uh, because you, you are a trainer of trainers, you've been teaching um, youth workers in higher education what would you say would be like the top three? <laughs> I make really hard questions all the time. Select right now, right here in front of everybody. <laughs> no pressure. The top three competences that you think a facilitator of learning should have. It doesn't have to be the, the top three. But what would you say, like besides reflection and being able to help a group actually gain conscience of their own learning process, which we talked about already, what other competences would you say facilitators of learning should have or should get training for? God, that is really hard. Okay. Um, then just give me one. Doesn't no, no, I, I, will, I will try for the three. I will try for the three. Okay. One, well, one, one, actually, I've, I've got in front of me because um, I'm just working on a publication at the moment, right. uh, which, is, which is about learning in youth work, strangely okay. enough. Okay. Um, and one of one of the um, the chapters that I wrote or sub chapters that I wrote was the youth worker as learner. Mm -hmm. So as I think the trainer or facilitator or youth worker also needs to recognize that they are a learner. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I'm a learner when I'm working, but also I need to be looking for opportunities 
um, to to learn more to, to become a participant to become a student. Yeah. Um, I think that, I think both of those things, um, and to look for opportunities for learning. So that, that could be research on the internet for looking books, uh, listening to amazing podcasts like this one, um, and and so on. So the, these this is one element of of it. Um, God, I should have just gone for the one. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, maybe maybe I can I can make it easier for you by putting uh, on a table a challenge that I find many times. A lot of the times when people come to training of trainers or mm, facilitation trainings, they are looking for the performance tips, you know, um, which are there as well. And you need to master to a certain level, you know, how do I draw, you know, such nice doodles in my flip chart or how do I, how how can I be enthusiastic on presenting an energizer? I don't know. These are the kind of questions I find that I get a lot of times. People ask, uh, what about group dynamics, etc. Uh, but sometimes I have the feeling that they come on a very shallow level, very performative, very shallow level of, um, I want to look good while I do it. Um, what do you comment on this? Yeah. <laughs> Okay. Uh, um, thanks for the for the help on this one. <laughs> um, I actually um, I, I do uh, two kinds of training for trainers. Um, one one is very um, uh, practical based tools, let's yeah. say. Um, so it is, is all of those things about how to draw this and and um, and, and yeah, verbal communication, nonverbal communication, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and then the other are through a series of, of uh, what I call learning experiences called comets, which is uh, through Salto Training and Cooperation. Um, and but I, I I think actually this is this is good for both of these. There's one particular activity that I do um, in in the um, in the more practical tool based training for trainers. And um, I usually uh, I start a discuss a, a group discussion. So we're sitting in a classical circle. I start a discussion and it can be, I try and make it relevant to, to whatever, but it's not going. And then after five minutes into this, into the discussion, I say, okay, stop. What happened in the group in the last five minutes? And then people look at you like you're completely stupid. And they just, well, we were talking about this. Yeah. Okay. But what actually happened in the group in the last five minutes? And then often people are quite stuck about it. So I said, well, no, so and so over there uh, was drumming their leg up and down for the last five minutes. They haven't stopped. Uh, this person has has sunk down in their chair from an upright position to a really slouched position. These two people were having a conversation for two minutes. This person was on their phone. So then we start having a conversation about this, and we're talking about all the things that were going on. And then I stop it again after five minutes, and I say, "Okay, what happened in the group in the last five minutes?" And people are like, "No, okay." <laughs> <laughs> And usually I can get to a third round because then I'm becoming really confused about what I'm talking about. As well. <laughs> people become inception too paranoid of the inception after this. Of the inception. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But people become, the group becomes too paranoid uh, as well. So it, it stops working. And afraid of but you. For me, the, sorry? And afraid of you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah a little bit. <laughs> actually, the best group I ever did with this with, uh, I actually pulled it to a close and they said, okay, what happened in the group in the last five minutes, Nick? 
And then <laughs> I, I pulled out three or four things that I compl- I had no idea because I was so my head was so <laughs> screwed up. But I, I use this exercise to say that as as a competence for a facilitator, um, you you've got to be a hundred percent aware of the discussion that you're leading. You've got to be formulating the next question that you want to ask while listening to the answer that you're receiving. You've got to be 100% aware of the group dynamic as a whole. You've got to be 100% aware of every single individual as an individual and what is their nonverbal communication in this moment. You've got to be 100% aware of your coworker, where they are, what they're doing, and are they looking to support you or have they fallen asleep? You've got to be 100% aware of your own nonverbal communication. Um, and I, I think there's probably something else. And if you, if you want a competence as a facilitator, that's the best competence that you can have is, is that five times or six times 100% awareness, um, which is absolutely impossible, of course. But, but that's, that's, a, that's a state that we need to train our brains to get to right. is, is to be able to have that cognition about what is happening. Um, and even outside of the group, because it could be that, that, you know, somebody's entered into the room or something is going on somewhere else in the hotel, wherever you're working. Or, or, you know, everything else. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, this, this would be, uh, one of the competencies I think that uh, facilitators need. And, and as a youth worker, um, you know, in, in my, yeah, well, Probably the the best I was operating as a youth worker, uh, certainly in in a youth club setting, I, w- I would say that I had 360 degree vision. Mm-hmm. I knew what every single young person was doing in that building at any time, uh, or not building. Sorry, it was a room. But uh, even if I was talking with you here, I knew what was going on in the corner. Uh, I knew what was going on over there behind me. And and as a youth worker, I think you you have this ability to to just know what is going on um and you need to have that ability to know what is going on and it's something we can teach ourselves yeah but, but i agree with you oh, sorry. I, let me just wait somebody this I, I would say that um, it's impossible to to be 100 percent aware about everything like said um but it is more a matter of presence of being really present and really available to that group and not in your head because i find that what distracts me a lot of times from being in that state is not really incapacity or being overwhelmed with everything that is going on because what is going on inside the room is, is not that much to, to overwhelm me so much, but it's all, it's mostly my own thoughts. It's mostly yeah. my own fears or insecurities or these are the loud ones that are taking my distraction. Yeah. But yeah. when I present, then I'm available and, and I'm aware, like you said, I have awareness of what's going on. So I, I think you picked really well that one. Sorry, Rui, I interrupted you. No, uh, you, you almost answered what I was asking because uh, I was going to ask because I was thinking of how do you teach mindfulness? It, it's it's kind of a mindful presence, uh, mm-hmm. but it can also be some uh, can develop as paranoia because it, it, I, I was imagining the situation of being aware of this, being aware of that, and. The, it's a very thin line between paranoia and you're being attacked from all sides or just being mindful of the moment. And do you have any ideas how to help people walk in the good side of the line? <laughs> <laughs> and not lose it. And not lose it. I, I, I think it's, it's just to treat it um, in 
or not not to get overwhelmed by it. I think when you when you become overwhelmed, um, then then you get into the paranoia. I think if if you can start teaching yourself, um, okay, I, I I need to understand more about nonverbal communication. I need to understand what's going on in the group. I need to raise my awareness about what's going on in the group to try and understand what's going on in the group. Um, I, I mean, there's a lot there's 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 a lot of different uh, competencies that build up this competence, for example. I mean, we take asking questions for granted. We've been doing it since we were, since we could speak, basically. I mean, uh, the terrible twos we would say in English, which is when uh, the kids are, why this, why this, what about, why this, why this, why, never stopping. Um, so we know how to ask questions, but nobody ever teaches us actually how to ask questions. And this in itself is a competence that is very, very necessary, especially in trainers and, and also in facilitation of learning. Um, there's something like 36 different ways of asking. There are 36 different types of questions that you can ask. Um, and, 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 you know, it's, it's really, if you start going through some of these, it's really, really eye opening about, okay, so this is, this is what I'm actually doing in this. And we do most of them. We just don't know that they actually have a title and a name. Um, and, and it's really starting to understand questions on this level, but then also having the ability to, to train yourself to, to be listening and formulating a question at the same time so that you're following a track. And what I find in, in a lot of, um, trainers and facilitators of learning when they're first starting out is when they're leading a, a debrief or, or facilitating a discussion, they're like butterflies. They hop from question to question to question, but then there's no, no linking between them. These are just the questions that they have in mind that need to be asked. So they just go for it. And, and actually what we need to do as facilitators of learning is then start working out, okay, conversation is going this way. Do I want to keep it going this way or, or do I want to bring it back to where I actually wanted it to be? No, this direction is actually good. Let's continue down this road. Okay, what do I need to ask then to, to follow this up? Um, and, and you've got to be having... I mean, this is, this is microseconds of, 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 uh, brain, uh, analysis taking place. Um, you, you haven't got time to be, to be working that out in your head. Like I was just speaking it, it's got to be like that. Um, but you can train yourself to do that. Uh, and, and that's something that, that as facility in facilitation of learning that I think we need to be doing is understanding basic understanding of psychology. Um, especially in terms of verbal and nonverbal communication, um, the ability, understanding properly questions. And I think this is something we really don't cover enough in any training courses that we, we do around facilitation and training, right. um, or training of trainers. Um, and, um, yeah, and, 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 and being in control with, without it becoming paranoia. <laughs> <laughs> Let me ask you something that I, I feel that a lot of times young facilitators or junior facilitators um, get in trouble with, which is learning design. Um, I, I think a lot of times people have this capacity, maybe already even from their personality, they have this capacity of communicating well or to actually observe a group and, and, and be present and be available for the group and all these things we've been talking about, reflection, etc. But then they sit and they have to prepare a session. And they're stuck. And they're like, what am I going to do? Even if I know, I mean, they should know about the subject, right? This is, <laughs> but, um, even if I'm comfortable in the topic that is going to be happening here, let's say that I'm working with a group of young people 
and we're going to discuss human rights. And I'm comfortable on the topic of human rights to actually be with them on this journey. But I'm in charge to design uh, at least part of this journey with them. How do I start? Um, mm. What would you have to say about this, the competence of designing learning? Um, I, I think that the, the competence here actually is understanding learning, understanding mm -hmm. what learning actually, okay. actually how learning happens, maybe right. is, is a better way to put it. Um, because yeah, the, what what you're talking about is is uh, um, people just say, okay, we've got to cover these these subjects. Here, here's ten subjects. Uh, we'll do these four on this day, these four on this day. Cram them in one after the other. And actually, there's no linking. There's no flow. There's no uh, dynamic in there. And and it's just like, okay, number one is done. Tick it off the off the list. Okay, next. And and actually, learning is not about this. Learning is a journey. Um, oh God, that sounds very. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I've said it a few times by now. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. <laughs> um, and but but it 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 is in a sense. It's it's about actually working with people. And and um, and what one of the things that I've I've discovered for myself, which is also again in in the more practical training of trainers is how do you put uh, a bunch of days together to make a training course? Mm -hmm. um, and, and classically what we've done in, in, and what I've been doing most of my career is, is you take these boxes, which is Monday morning first session, Monday morning second session, Monday morning session after lunch, mm -hmm. and then second session after lunch, and then Tuesday, Wednesday, exactly the same. And, and you basically work with these, these blocks of time, which are classically an hour and a half. And then... In the last few years, I've started to challenge myself to stop using boxes and just to start with um, there's Monday, Tuesday, uh, just to have a, a, a line of days at the top of a page um, and then just to to draw blobs of, okay, these, these are the four or five areas I need to cover this week. How are they actually going to fit together? And, and not, not any more thinking about one and a half hour blocks and not even necessarily thinking linear days, mm -hmm. but maybe uh, this could start here and it could go over to here and then it could appear again here. Um, so then I'm, I'm just drawing blobby, well, blobs. I don't know how to describe it. Blobby blobs. Something I realize. <laughs> um, and, and then you can then start looking, okay, maybe we don't have a break on Tuesday morning. Um, and maybe we have four breaks on Wednesday afternoon. Um, because actually that, that works better. Um, and, and just letting things flow. And actually this, this is flowing from this day into the next day. Right. Um, the structure in a way. Yeah. You're breaking the structure completely so that you're then thinking about your subjects and, and what space they need rather than trying to fit them into uh, a series of, of one and a half hour boxes. You're now thinking in terms of, um, what space do they actually need and, and what do the, what does that space look like? So you're you're actually giving the subject free reign in a sense then to 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 be in control rather than than a series of boxes. So and and then trying to get people to think in this concept of of actually what do I need or what does the subject need? Yeah. And how yeah. do I meet the need of the subject to meet the need of the group? 
um, it then frees you up much more. And then I don't have to be, okay, I ha- we, it's a really important discussion we're having right now, but um, it's, it's time we have to stop. And after the break, we're going to be doing uh, another subject. And then suddenly it's like, actually, the break doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can push that back and, and then we can let this, this important conversation flow. And then we have me and my colleagues, we have, have a panic attack in the break, trying to work out now how we actually uh, respect the work that my colleague has done on their part of the session, which now has been cut in half. You know, how do we then move that so that actually they are then able to, to do their part? So, I mean, it's, it's always a balance, of course. Absolutely. Um, I think you're. I think you mentioned also something that is very important for for whoever is starting, because a lot of times I think the the fear that young facilitators have of this, what should I design? I mean, how do you design a session? How do I start? I think it's many times because it's the same fear of the blank page for a writer. Like it's because there's nothing, there's nothing, and I'm I'm supposed to create everything from scratch. But it's not exactly like that. There is no blank page here because you're supposed to be working, like you said, Nick, with the needs of the group and with the topic itself that is there. And it, it has its own life, let's say. It has yeah, its own yeah. um, things to, say, to to be said that you, we, we find essential. So you don't have a blank page. You, you have these things there already, but you need to see them to have them present in order to be able to design a flow, right? I don't know. For me, for example, it's very interesting always to think like, where where is the group now and where do I want them to be? Um, for example, in a session of human rights, three hours with a group of young people in a youth center, maybe they need to know that maybe they need to see the chart of human rights. Maybe that's not the most important in that moment. Maybe what we need is to be reflecting about something else. So I, I don't know this idea that there is no blank page when I'm designing because I'm supposed to be designing in service of a group a specific yeah. group that I should know something about and of a subject that I should be knowing th- also something about, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I, well, at least I think in youth work, you have a greater advantage um, in, in youth work, working with young people, youth work, uh, of knowing the group that you that you work with. So you are able to, um, uh, you should be able to design much more to, to their needs mm. and be aware of their needs. Um, I think in the training sector, um it's not so easy because we're we're often working with uh most often working with groups we've never met and will never meet again um and who are also individuals to each other when they they're not a group when they first meet they're 24 30 people who come from different countries don't know each other some maybe um but that then again is 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 saying okay we start off with designing um, to what we think are the needs of this group, according to the information that we have, so we can we can design something. And then when you're working with the group, then having the ability to say, okay, we got that completely wrong after day one. Uh, let's let's redesign this, and not having six hours of meeting about it, but but knowing that you've got the material, you've got everything that you need. Maybe you just need to push things around. Maybe this particular element needs more time your example of human rights there maybe they don't need to see the charter maybe actually what they need to see or to visualize is the discrimination that they are facing as as lbgtqi or as roma young people or and to realize actually you know it's not about a piece of paper it's about you as a human being and and violations that you are experiencing and actually yes this is written down because it's here that you can then show later and so uh Sometimes it's 
you might think that you have to start off with with the charter and the articles, and then actually realize that actually you've got to start off with the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can happen in a training course. So then you just have to reverse things around. It's not the end of the world. It's not a disaster. It's a completely normal um, thing to happen. Um, it's just deal with it um, and, and don't get in a panic about it. <laughs> okay. Sorry, get in a panic about it. <laughs> so here's the takeaways from this session. Don't get paranoid. <laughs> I think we need to stop this soon before we start telling people don't kill yourself. (laughs) It's a lot of don'ts. Yeah, it's a lot of don'ts. Okay, but we are are almost um, in a one-hour episode right now, so so I want to start wrapping it up. But before we do that, Nick, you have the honor to answer a question from our previous guest. Uh, Hui has the question ready for you. Uh, so the question from our previous guest is, what are, in your opinion, the best tools for young people to face the challenge of their generation? <laughs> an easy one. It's an easy one. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the first thing that came to my mind is social media. Oh, wow. Um, I, I, know, I know that's also um, um, a huge cause of many of the challenges for young people. But the reality is that that, um, uh, that that social media is such a big part of young people's lives, um, or the majority of young people's lives, and um, and I I think um, I think it is a it is a, an amazing tool that can be used uh, to meet challenges, and and many young people are starting to to be more mature with it, let's say. I think I think for, for many of us, um, older generations, we kind of went through the childhood and the adolescence of social media. Um, and this generation that's coming through now, or these generations that are coming through now, are almost into the adulthood of social media and, and uh, becoming more responsible with it. Mm. Not entirely. <laughs> I mean, there's... <laughs> there's I mean, there's conflict at the moment in Armenia and Azerbaijan, and, and my social media is, is full of really hurtful, horrible things from, from young people uh, about the other side. So there is still um, a lot of big issues um, uh, to be tackled. But mm-hmm. um, I, I think it's, it's a tool that cannot be ignored, and it needs to be embraced. Um, yeah. The problem is the solution. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Nick. And what would be the question you would leave for the next guest? Um, yes, dear guest, uh, or dear next guest, what <laughs> has been the most important innovation in youth work for you in the last five years? All right. Very nice. Very concrete and hard. <laughs> <laughs> I hope the answer is not social media. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> But it will oh, be funny. Yes. I have to find out who your next guest is going to be and I can feed them the answer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have to tell you and, and our audience that sometimes we record our interviews not in the same order they are released. So sometimes uh-huh. the questions are also not exactly following the, yes. the episodes, the order of the episodes, but uh, it will be uh, somewhere in the next months. So you're going to have to hear the podcasts, Nick. Yeah. <laughs> is that the answer to that question? All of them. We're hiding, <laughs> we're hiding the answer. And you have to find it. <laughs> it's even okay, in one, one of last, the episodes. One last question. 
Nick, um, for any facilitators out there that want to improve their competences, um, would you recommend them um, any action or, or book or um, where can they go and learn more about being a facilitator of learning? Um, oh, yes, good, good question. Um, I, I think there are there are a few things. As I, as I mentioned earlier, this is a bit of self-promotion here, but I, I'm part of a team writing writing a book called uh, Focus Learning, mm -hmm. uh, which is about learning in youth work. Um, and that will hopefully be published in about a month's time. So we're, we're at the beginning of October at the moment. Um, so hopefully by November uh, that will be out. That's also being, we're now also developing um, 34 different materials to accompany that book in terms of, of podcasts, videos, um, posters, flyers, um, comics, and, and other things that, that will accompany different parts of the material. Um, and, and, um, and they will be launched sometime next year. Uh, so that, that's, it, that's very specifically um, about learning in youth work. Um, in terms of, of facilitation in general, um, there, there is the, uh, the European Training Strategy has the uh, competence framework for, for uh, trainers working at international level, um, which is very interesting. And, and uh, I think it's a useful tool to look at. It doesn't necessarily give, if you're a beginner, it can be a little bit hard to understand what, it, what is being asked. Yeah. But more experienced trainers, I think it's a useful tool to, to approach. And, and again, for more advanced uh, and experienced trainers, the, the series of commerce training mm -hmm. courses, which is based on that competence model, um, are very, very useful and very reflection-based. So that it's really uh, self-responsibility of learning in, in, in those. Um, and then um, there, there are training courses like, like the one that you run, Anita, um, the, um, the training of trainers um, every two years, I think it is, or is it every year? I forget how it runs. Every year, yeah. Yeah, um, I think is a super useful uh, activity, and many organisations are running training for trainers, um, and and or training for for facilitators, which cover many of the same uh, aspects. Yeah. So I think th those are worth looking out for. Um, and um, if, if you're really just after the facilitation or the training, then look for the ones which really are just training for trainers, because many of them tend to be training for trainers in human rights. And then there's not so much focus on, on um, the skills and competencies of being a trainer. It's more about how to work with this particular subject. Okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, just, just be aware of what you're actually looking for. Um, and there's probably a gazillion publications out there. Um, Time to Show Off by Paul Klusterman, mm -hmm. um, which, is, which is an interesting one. Um, Mark Taylor and Paul Klusterman wrote one uh, facilitator's handbook. I think this is going back about 10 years now, I think. Um, that's that's also, uh, I've probably got the title wrong, but that, that's a really, that's a good one to look at because it really breaks down what is learning. Um, and Mark Taylor. A previous guest. <laughs> yeah, one of our, this was also uh, a yeah. guest, yeah. He also wrote, uh, I co-wrote the one to one, which is about reflection as yeah. well. So, yeah. Well, we can add all these links to uh, the text of the episode. So we will talk after the episode to kind of gather all these resources yeah. for everyone out there that wants to um, dive into this topic a little bit more. Yeah. Nick, it was an absolute pleasure to, yeah, to see you and to talk with you and to explore this kind of hard um, 
these hard topics, which, which are sometimes hard to define and to clearly uh, answer. So I'm sorry if I made you some troubling questions. I'm <laughs> nor yeah. obsessed with neither of them. <laughs> I'm sweating a bit here in Montenegro. But, uh... <laughs> well, thank you so much. It was really a big pleasure. Thank you, Hui, as well. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. This podcast is produced by Tim Maish with the support of UMAC, University of Applied Sciences.